There was a man standing on the ledge of a bridge about to jump. A second man ran over and said, Stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, the jumper said. And the rest of their back and forth conversation goes like this. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Well, are you religious? Yes. Me too, said the man trying to save him. Are you Christian or Buddhist or what? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant, said the jumper. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist, said the jumper. Wow. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God, said the jumper. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? And the jumper said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. The other man said, Die, heretic, and pushed him off. <laughs> Christians, it comes as no surprise, have some preposterous divisions which create really profoundly misplaced loyalties and profoundly distorted views of the world. In fact, there's a, a big, fat book. It's called A Handbook of Denominations in the United States. And in this case, being a fat book is not a good thing. I like fat books. But not that this book's fat. There are apparently, at last count, some 30,000 denominations, or Christian bodies. And however one wants to account for this, the basic fact remains, the visible church of Christ is miserably divided. Something we don't often think about, but which is brought to our attention in the text this morning. And make no mistake about it, this division's a scandal. And it adversely affects our witness to the gospel in the world. If we believe the testimony of Scripture, this is a situation which grieves our Lord. You remember, Jesus prayed vigorously in his high priestly prayer in John 17 for a unity among all his disciples and all who would believe after them. A unity which would manifest itself visibly in the world. And so the text this morning for Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, is about our unity in Christ. And it's not hard to figure out why the Apostle Paul launches into this subject precisely at this point. He has already set forth the reality of one new man, a third race, in great detail. He's labored this in chapters 2 and 3. And so now he turns passionately to the oneness or the unity of that one new man. So I want to look at the text under two headings, just two main points here. Charity 
and Trinity. Charity and Trinity. So the first point then, our unity depends upon our charity or our conduct in the body of Christ. In verse 2, the apostle begins urging us, saying, we're to walk worthy of a calling, of the calling which we've received. Now, of course, in one sense, we're not worthy of the calling we've received. It comes to us from the sheer grace of God. Nevertheless, we are to walk in a manner which corresponds by grace to our calling. Paul expects us to live lives worthy of the high destiny which we have in Christ. And we can see what this entails, what this looks like, beginning in verse 2, lowliness or humility in some translations, meekness or gentleness are named first. These are the virtues he names at the outset. Now, humility is a virtue which was not prized in the ancient world. That they cherished the hero, right? The strong man, the great souled man, the alpha male, the man of bravado and exploits. Honor, perhaps, courage, perhaps, bravery, but humility, no. Hemingway would be a good example of the Greek heroic ideal. And yet, and by the way, this ethos lives on in American public life. Yet, the Apostle Paul summons us to lowliness and to meekness. Virtues on full display in the life of our Lord Jesus, who was meek and lowly in heart. Now, we are not talking here about being shy or retiring. Nor are we talking about that natural sort of, you know, self-effacing personality with which some are endowed. To be humble, in the biblical sense of the word, is simply to live in reality. It's to assess God and yourself properly. There's no trickery here. There's no, oh, I must evaluate things as if they're not. This is to embrace the only sane posture that redeemed creatures can have before the living God of all grace. It means we see God, we see ourselves clearly. Humility is sanity. Clear-eyed sanity about yourself, about others, about the world, and about God. Pride is a form of lunacy. And we're also taught here by the addition of gentleness or meekness that the humble person defers to others, respects their opinion as members of the same gifted body of Christ, made in the image of God. And so that if we possess lowliness or humility, we will be gentle with each other. And this meekness, this gentleness, is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. It's mildness. Strength under control. It's what we see in Jesus. It's the absence of a disposition to constantly have to assert one's personal rights. 
It's a posture where we overlook and cover the faults of others. Right? Paul is well aware that some people are going to aggravate you. He's not naive about this. Some people rub us the wrong way. Certain personalities don't mix well. That's why he adds patience or long-suffering here. A word which brings out, frankly, the note of endurance. We know about endurance. Except, we always think that we are having to endure others. But we, we never think that they are having to endure us. I bet not one person in the whole tri-state area went home this, this week after work and told their spouse, you know, I am really making it miserable for people at work. They have to forbear with me. No, no, there's 20 million cases of they are making it miserable for me. Paul understands that endurance is a part of this. This is made explicit, actually, richer by the next phrase. Bearing with one another in love. You know, the, the foibles and the blind spots that we all possess are to be endured, for sure. They're to be born. But you can forbear and endure and still despise a person. Right? In fact, that's probably the way most forbearance and endurance operates, even in the church. Right? True humility or meekness bears with the other, but it does so, Paul says at the end of verse 2, in love. In love. And love, we know, covers a multitude of sins because there's a multitude of sinners with a multitude of sins in their lives. And love never fails. It doesn't subtly gossip or undermine the other person. It blesses and encourages them in spite of all the natural and sometimes justified aggravations which exist in human life. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle starts this way, isn't it? Because a good deal, a large portion of our unhappy divisions, both in life and especially in the church, they stem precisely from this root of pride and a lack of true love and forbearance. Right, we tend to think that all of our divisions are righteous, all of them stem from doctrinal matters of high importance. As soon as somebody says uh, the church is divided, there's, a, there's always a, you know, a, an army of people who want to get out their Bibles and prove that their side is right and the other side is wrong. And to be sure, some divisions stem from serious and important doctrinal matters. Yet when Paul opens up the topic, it is our own sinfulness that he highlights. I don't think I'd be wrong if I guessed that a large number of church splits in this county alone could be explained in these terms. Right? We shouldn't think of grand splits over there, you know, with the Vatican and us and, the, and then hundreds of years ago. Sure, that, that's ground for reflection. This text is saying, look, on the ground the church is divided. Well, how did it happen? 
It usually happens because people are not humble. They're not meek. They don't forbear with one another in love. There's a, a well-known preacher, Dwight Pentecost, who tells a story of a church split. The split got so bad that it ended up in the, in the civil courts. And after a thorough judicial review in the courts, it was revealed that the split started at a church dinner where one man received a slice of ham that was smaller than the slice of ham given to the child sitting next to him. Now, anyone who's been in the church long enough knows this is really not that implausible. That's why there wasn't a whole lot of laughter. It's really not funny. I mean, it's not a joke. And it's thoroughly believable. The improper handling of small irritations, a piece of ham, always leads to these much bigger problems. And then as the problem gets bigger, people's motives get more noble. They forget. The divisions begin not in some noble defense of the truth. They begin in the depth of our sinful hearts. And so this is a text about concrete unity with your neighbor, with the person to your left and right in front of you and behind you and on the other side of this church. To live in this kind of unity and peace in the body of Christ requires that we remember our own sins with much more grief than the sins of others. It requires the abundant daily grace of God because we're to make visible what we've seen in chapters 2 and 3, that the church of Jesus Christ is the visible site of the world's reconciliation. Otherwise, all of this talk about a new humanity and a new man and a third race and a reconciled cosmos is just so much prattle. This is why, one of the reasons why, the gospel is so impotent in the world. There's a sort of instinctive sense in which unbelievers know there's a dissonance between all of this Christian infighting and division and the fundamental gospel of reconciliation and the creation of a new united humanity that the church proclaims. Jesus grasped this. He said to his disciples, if you're not one, if you're not united, the world won't know that the Father sent me. Charity is the crucial facet in church unity. Second, let's look at how our unity is rooted in the Trinity. Uh, Now here Paul, because he's beginning with the church, he moves sort of in the reverse order of what we're, we're used to. He moves from the Spirit to the Son to the Father because he's starting down here in the, in the body of Christ where the Spirit dwells. So first then, the Spirit as the source of our unity. Verse 3, he says we should be endeavoring, striving to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now it's important to, to, to read this text right. To see that he says that the church already possesses an indestructible unity in the Spirit. We are not called to create the unity of the Spirit. It already exists as a gift of God. Christ has reconciled us and He has created one new man. And this unity of the Spirit 
the text says, has created a bond of peace between us. Not a cold peace. Not just an absence of hostilities. A shalom, a harmony, well-being. God has established as one body here a body in peace and unity. And our own well-being, our personal well-being, as well as the well-being of our brothers and sisters, depends on earnestly endeavoring to preserve this unity in peace. We have in our tradition, in our various vows, often vows ministers take or, or vows that new members take, a vow to study the purity and the peace of the church. If you're a member, you might remember that language. Now, we have a lot of folks who are very good on the purity side, meaning doctrinal purity, but don't have nearly the same passion to study and be zealous about the peace and the unity and the harmony and the well-being of the church. And this language in the text of making every effort means that you should be in haste, Paul says. You should be urgent about keeping this peace because it's a divinely established peace. Look at verse 4. Beginning in verse 4, note that Paul will use there the word one seven times in rapid succession. The first three uses are tied to the Holy Spirit. There's one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling. Again, there's only one body. And the reason there's only one body is there's only one Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. One Spirit, therefore one body. As well, there is one hope of your calling. All Christians have the same hope, the same future inheritance, the same orientation. Part of the reason there's so much fracturing among us is people are not actually turned and oriented toward that hope in a vital way. All these other near end, near term hopes and aspirations cause the divisions. One spirit means one body and one shared destiny. And that destiny is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I had not noticed it before, but the hymn, The Church is One Foundation, which we just sang a few minutes ago, every verse of that hymn actually orients the church toward the end or mentions the end. All six verses. There's one Spirit, and because there's one Spirit, there's one coming hope. Secondly, our unity is grounded in the Son. Our unity is grounded in the Spirit. It's also grounded in the Son. Verse 5. You get three more uses of the word one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Just as the reality of one body and one hope were associated with the Spirit, so here... With our one Lord Jesus Christ, we have associated one faith, one baptism. There's only one faith because there's only one Lord who's the object of our faith. 
There are not 30,000 faiths. There can only be one faith. To think otherwise is to tear Christ into pieces. Or to behave as if there are multiple Christs. One Lord. And also Paul says, one baptism. And all the ancient creeds of the church say this. We believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Whatever you might want to say about water baptism versus baptism in the Spirit, this text makes it clear that there are not two baptisms. Theologically, there's one baptism. Because in your one baptism, you are by the one Spirit baptized into the one Lord. That's why baptism, once validly administered, is never to be repeated. One baptism received once for all time. And the third ground of our unity, verse 6, is the Father. One God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in all. Meaning all the children of His church. We have a shared paternity. Remember Paul said back in chapter 3 that every family in heaven and on earth derives its identity from the Father. The Father's above all. He's through all. He's in the midst of all of us. Fusing us together. He's the all-pervasive God. So we have in the text a sevenfold Trinitarian unity. One Spirit, thus one body and one hope. One Lord, thus one faith and one baptism. One God and Father of all. The unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God Himself. So now, we ought not to forget the, the point of this rather extraordinary piece of rhetoric from the Apostle. The unity of the church, the unity of her faith, her life, her sacraments, notice baptism is mentioned here, is grounded in the unity of the triune God. And because this is true, we are to be meek and lowly of mind, long-suffering and bearing with one another in love because to do otherwise is to assault the oneness of God and the oneness of His one new man. So this is a ground for a high and serious call to love one another with patience. To mistreat a brother or a sister is to mistreat a member of Christ's body, a recipient of the one Spirit, a child of the one Father. Let me close by reminding us of what we said at the outset. While it's true, this text has just taught us, it's true that there's a unity created and established by the triune God which cannot be destroyed. It can't be effaced and which you are called to endeavor, to strive, to be in haste, to urgently seek to preserve. Nevertheless, we can and we have marred the visible expression of this unity. Both things are true. The church has an indestructible unity, and the church's unity can be visibly marred without being destroyed. And so we can never be satisfied to retreat into some purely invisible unity while the church is visibly ruptured. Remember, the unity of the church as it's depicted in this church 
in this text, excuse me, in this text, while it's invisible, has an invisible dimension, it includes her faith, her life together, her sacraments. These are visible realities. Perhaps an illustration can get at this a little better. Imagine a family with children where the parents after years of fighting, agree to separate. One lives in L.A., the other lives in New York. They're unable to live together in peace. The children move away, they grow up, they rarely have contact with one another. But they have family reunions, birthdays and the like, and they, they can get together, they can show up at certain gatherings and keep things civil and then go their separate ways. Right? Many of us have families like this, right? It's not, it's not a hypothetical example per se. I mean, clearly, this is still one family in some basic sense. But we wouldn't want to remain satisfied. We wouldn't make this the ideal situation. Right? This is analogous to the situation in the body of Christ. Right? And simply because, especially as American evangelicals, we've never known anything different, it doesn't mean that we can accept the status quo. You're not allowed to have a cold peace with six, a half a dozen people in the church. Right? Your forbearance of, of people in the community cannot be some form of privately despising them and publicly enduring them. You're not allowed to be civil with them at fellowship dinners, but really not love them. Right? This text does not allow that. Which means it does not allow a good deal of what passes under the rubric of church going in the United States. Paul beseeches us from his apostolic change. He actually starts in verse 1 and says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you. And he's not just a metaphorical prisoner. He's chained to a Roman guard. And from those chains, he urges us to manifest and preserve the unity which is ours in the body of Christ. And this doesn't mean there has to be one visible organization. Paul doesn't have governmental schemes in view here. It does mean that there has to be humility and meekness and forbearance in love. We have to make every effort, he says. We have to be in haste about this peace. And the famous words of St. Francis apply here, I think. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace, of your reconciliation, your wholeness, your well-being. Where there is hate, may I bring love. Where there is offense, may I bring pardon. May I bring union in place of discord. Let Love and peace reign in the church and let it begin with you and me and Westminster Presbyterian Church. May God grant us grace to walk in a manner worthy of this glorious calling. Amen.